Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Julia for sure. How are you doing? Good, thanks, John. How are you? I'm very well. And you've written the sector focus this week. That's right, on the UK rail franchising system. Indeed, very good timing because there's obviously a lot of talk about renationalising the railways and we are in the middle of the political party conference season and uh, that's a big, big thing that Labour are pushing was this week. Tom Dines, how are you doing, Tom? Good, thanks. You've written the cover feature this week. I have, along with Harriet Clarfelt's. And it's a, it's about basically uh, ethical investing, mm. although we don't call it that anymore because cause it's a bit of a turn-off. No, it's yeah. got this catchy new name. It's, uh, well, ESG investing or sustainable investing, basically making money while doing good. Indeed. And, and there's a little bit of a political angle to that as well. Uh, so, so they kind of tie up quite nicely. Um, and over in the control room, Megan Boxall. How are you, Megan? I'm good, thanks. Excellent. And you have written about the Sky deal this week, which yes. has finally, yes, finally, finally come to a conclusion. Nearly two years. It has provided us with a lot of content in that two years indeed indeed well i tell you what i mean we're gonna we're gonna before we go into the the sex focus before we talk about the cover feature uh, we're gonna do do a little bit of the news this week and uh, i think you picked out a story each let's start with you megan let's talk about what what the uh, the conclusion of this long-running uh takeover saga has mm. been yeah so the conclusion is comcast has won the the bid after a sealed auction process uh that's quite unusual Friday. isn't it yeah really unusual it hardly ever happens and the reason that the uk takeover panel decided that they had to do that was because there was just a bit of a deadlock between Comcast and 21st Century Fox, which made the initial offer in December 2016. And that offer was £10.75, pence a share. Comcast eventually won Sky at £17.28. So, I mean, a crazy premium. It's actually at 124% premium to the share price on the day before Fox made its original offer. So people have made a lot of money from this deal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, has Com- is Comcast going to make a lot of money for this deal? That's the big question because with a, paying a premium like that, you you know, the, the numbers are going to be looking tight, you would imagine. Yeah, I think it's going to be quite difficult for them to to actually make a decent return. It It seems like there's a bit of... There's a few personality issues in there, maybe, that made them put the bid so high that Brian Roberts, who's the chief executive of Comcast, has had a really long-running dispute with Bob Iger, who's the chief executive of Disney. Disney is, in turn, buying Fox. So this was kind of a battle between those two media moguls in the US. And in trying to get Sky, make sure that that his bid was the highest. Yes, maybe he went too high, a £30 billion pound deal for a company which has well it's got 27 million subscribers in europe but it's not particularly profitable company it was 12.4 times ebitda valuation which is so much higher than what disney is paying for fox or what at&t paid for time warner and both of those are a far more well-established companies so yeah i think i think they've they've overpaid there okay i mean this the industry backdrop is quite interesting um you know, one of the reasons it may have overpaid is because it's incredibly competitive and yeah. you have lots of people out there launching new subscription digital platforms mm-hmm. and, and Disney, I think, is, is one of them. Yeah, uh, Disney is about to launch its own uh, digital platform. It's going to try and compete with Netflix. It's actually brought, pulled all its content off Netflix in the US and it's probably going to pull all of Fox's content off Netflix as well, which is, that's a big deal for Netflix because between Disney and Fox, they, they're far and away the biggest content, content producer in the world. So it's not, not a great time for, for Netflix now that Fox and Disney are sharing yeah, no, no, absolutely. So, so, I mean, just just tell us. I mean, 
Disney uh, is a share we like. I think we have yeah, the, the shares on it. buy. Yeah. Um, Comcast, we, we, don't, we haven't really looked at specifically no. as an individual company. But I mean, let's talk about Disney and, and where this leaves Disney, because that is the company in which we have a... I, yeah. I would say, a, not a vested interest, but an in, more yeah, of an more interest. more of an interest than anything else, especially now UK investors aren't going to have access to Sky anymore. I, so. Exactly. Uh, yeah, Disney we like, and I think they have played an absolute blinder with this deal because they have made this offer for Fox, which is a pretty generous offer. But Comcast also wanted Fox. Earlier this year, they, they made an offer as well. Disney kept on putting its price up a little bit, and Comcast eventually had to say, no, we can't afford to buy Fox as well. We're just going to focus on Sky. Disney said, fine, but we also want Sky. But they, they put in a pretty reasonable offer. It was a £15 offer. Comcast ended up having to pay a huge amount of money, and Disney has said, okay, that's fine. We're now going to sell our current stake, or Fox's current stake, in Sky. So they're going to liquidate that asset at about $11 billion worth, which is great for Disney. That, that goes straight into their, onto their balance sheet, so, sorts out debt, which is a slight problem for Disney at the moment. Not a huge problem, but it's going to be helped by selling that stake in Sky. And, and it's now got a competitor who's having to spend an awful lot of time and money integrating a platform in Europe. Yeah, and I mean Disney Fox. I mean, you think of the actual the the most important thing in these businesses content. Yeah, they're a powerhouse. Oh yeah, uh, nothing close. No, uh, Time Warner is the next biggest. To it, it's the bit at the moment. Time Warner is the biggest individual company, but Fox Disney is going to be way bigger than that. But but in terms of the the brands and you know the, the, oh, yeah. the intellectual property it owns, I mean it's, mm-hmm. it's popular stuff. Yeah, and it reunites all the Marvel characters. As oh, well, that's which, the best thing yeah. about this deal. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're still uh, sticking with buy Disney shares. Disney, yeah, for sure. It's uh, yeah, it's a good good company. All right, thank you, Megan. Um, let's talk about booze, Julia. You have updated your tip on Diageo this week. That's right. Still looking good. It is well. It's kind of a short-term hiccup on currency at the moment. But um, there's not a lot companies can do about that. With no, exactly. Apart from a bit of hedging and yeah, it's nothing. Nothing to do with their strategy. It's just yeah, some of the emerging market currencies haven't been doing very well lately, and so that was a very slight headwind for Diageo. So they put out this quasi profit. Not a profit warning. It's a cut to profit expectations, but they, yeah, they cut the forecast for net sales. And it, but just considering the scale of the business, it was quite minimal. And Man, shares it- hardly even moved on the day, too. And usually when you see something like that by a smaller company, shares drop quite substantially. Yeah, Whereas Diageo, I think it just is a testament to strategy still in place. So investors still have confidence. Again, a company that has an enormous portfolio uh, of fantastic global brands. That's right. Yeah, basically, uh, most spirits or booze brands that you see in the stores, it probably owned by Diageo. Yeah, absolutely. And what, what is the strategy? I mean, how this is a big old company, global reach, where emerging market is a bit tough. Where's the growth coming from here? Why, why are we still confident in the, uh, the shares? I mean, I think what perhaps could have made of this update worse news was that uh, they had been moving a bit more into emerging markets. And mm. so the fact that um, the profits were cut because of something that happened in emerging markets is, it, I think it could have been interpreted worse than it was. But I think it's just the fact that it is just purely currency movements. It's got nothing to do with 
declining like for like sales that we know of anyway. You, the US was the big market for the Asia. Yeah, the US is still its largest market by far, but it's got such high saturation at that point. But they've been kind of pushing things like whiskies and scotches there. Yeah. Whereas things like Smirnoff vodka are less popular than they used to be. So it's sort of more premium brands. Then. Yeah, exactly. And just something different too. I mean, like in the US, I think... Things like uh, vodkas and gins and stuff were always kind of more of a go-to spirit as opposed to something like a whiskey, whereas mm. now that's becoming a bit more popular and Diageo's trying to really capitalize on that. Same with tequila as well. I mean, tequila's always been popular, but the, last year they made that big acquisition of George Clooney's Casamigos tequila brand. Yeah, that which markets itself, presumably being uh, George Clooney's tequila yeah, brand. Yeah, kind of what more marketing do you need there? Indeed, no, no, it's interesting. I, mean, it's a tr- I think that's a trend in this industry. I think David Beckham launched a whiskey. Yeah, that's they, right. Even, even though he doesn't drink is that right nope. Tom? that's what i heard yeah yeah that's strange but there you go the power of celebrities we're marketing anyway we like we like the angio so like uh, um still got the chairs on a buy tom yes. chairs we don't like so much which uh yeah. on the front page of the news section <laughs> uh mighty not yes. so mighty absolutely yeah so essentially we've had them on a sell for a while now based on the kind of ongoing issues with the outsourcing sector the shares were down because uh, operating profit is going to be flat or lower for the first half of the year they said it's primarily due to investment in various projects that cost cutting projects improving customer service stuff like that but um if you look through the the performance of the different divisions it's essentially every division but two has some sort of problem that's going to impact profit or revenue the two that don't account for a combined 24% of revenue. Right. So, so is this is this a company-specific issue or a series of company-specific issues? Or is it this the market just turning its back on outsourcing? Or what? A combination of the two? Possibly a combination of the two. Each of the different divisions has very different issues that they're facing. So it's contract mix in cleaning, for example. It's uh, outdoor sales have been affected in uh, catering. And on top of that, they're expecting to um, miss the net debt projections and their cost-cutting programme may have delays in showing benefits. So there's just every angle with Mighty. It's just bad all over, basically. Yeah. So, so, I mean, is SL uh, moving in the right direction? It's... What price did we sell it at? I can't can't Um, remember. I can't remember exactly, but it's, it's down quite considerably on the original tip because there was there was a hope that the worst was you know baked into the share prices in the outsourcing sector yeah in the absolutely. wake of the Caribbean scandal mm. uh, uh, you know it was kind of a, it was a bit of a tough call like, is, you know is, it, is this the, the nadir or, or are things going to continue to worsen and i think we, we took yeah. the latter view absolutely well in some cases circo seems to be getting its act together and uh, actually the market view seemed to be that mighty was improving the the short positions fell from 14 to four percent Worryingly, they've they've crept up in the case of Babcock, which is a, which is a share we quite like. Yeah. So um, it's it's a mixed bag with the outsourcers, but it, it's less uniformly bad than it has been. But it's uh, in Mighty's case, it's still not looking good. Still a sell then. Yes. Okay. Right. Let's talk about another sector that's uh, that's really been having a a horrible time recently, and that is uh, UK Rail. Um, not a sector that I would personally ever invest in, being a commuter. <laughs> yeah, at this point, we don't have uh, the only UK transport group that we have on a buy right now is National Express, which has completely ditched its UK rail business. Yeah, I love this. There's a, there's a brilliant quote from uh, from the chief exec. Yeah, was, when uh, Chris was... Davis, uh, who who said that he had, uh, did he tell you this? Uh, it was when I spoke to the chief financial officer at the last set of results. He told me. 
there's no way in hell that we are going to touch UK Rail ever again. Yeah, and, and then the chief executive said if he ever decided that it would be a good idea for the company to go back into UK Rail, that he hopes that the board would take him out back and shoot him. I mean, <laughs> that is not a glowing endorsement of the uh, the business opportunity in the UK rail no, sector. Especially considering that National Express used to be the biggest UK rail operator. Yeah, yeah, they used to run my franchise for a bit, actually. Don't anymore. Um, obviously, is anything going well in the sector for anyone in the rail aspects of these businesses? Honestly... Not particularly. I mean, what, what, commuters what? love to complain that there's delays or cancellations. They would do that the government anyway. loves to complain that they keep having to bail out different franchises. And the companies themselves like to complain that they're losing money all over the place. So it's uh, just a really nasty place to be right now. I mean, so, so, so there have been problems with service uh, provision this year, particularly spe- some specific issues around timetabling that caused all sorts of horrible problems. Yeah, that was the Govia Thameslink um, changes to the... Uh, scheduling that Go Ahead had to deal with. It's kind hit- of since been resolved. I, they say that since July they kind of did a revised, revised. That's the one that essentially brought Chris Grayling's career as transport secretary to a. Uh, Pretty an much, end. yeah. Yeah. So what what other problems have we have we got in some of the other franchises? I know there's been a lot of rebidding going on. Yeah, I mean the biggest failures. Probably the biggest disaster of this year has been the East Coast uh, franchise, where towards the end of last year, um, the operators that said. It's called VTech. It's a joint venture between Stagecoach and Virgin Group. And they were supposed to run it. Um, There's still years and years left on the franchise. And it was supposed to run until 2023, I believe. And then the they were just running out of money. And so the government came in and said, all right, um, you can end it early around like 2020. That was at the end of last year. And at the beginning of this year, they had to s- step in and say, "We have the government has to fully take over running this operation because they've just lost so much money and they just can't do it anymore. Yeah, but, I mean, so, so why is that the case? Because you would have thought that the whole business of running a railway is reasonably predictable, that you know how many passengers are likely to use the service, you know how much running, running your infrastructure is going to cost you, your rolling stock. Yeah, well, the investigation into it, yeah, they were saying that more people were driving instead of uh, taking their trains because fuel prices were a lot cheaper and that the passenger numbers weren't expecting what they would be to begin with. Mm. And the government just thought these were all ridiculous. Yeah, they, they, their revenue growth forecast were punchy, 10% yeah, a year. Yeah, 10% I mean, a year, which the, they were saying was absurd to begin with. I mean, this is this is interesting, though, because because the the rail market has been growing like a train, oh, uh, if you excuse the pun. Yeah. I mean, since, since it was privatised, you've got some figures in here. Um, you know, the number of people using the railways, the amount of revenue coming from the railways... Is, is growing, has grown substantially. It's grown substantially, yeah. But it's just an incredibly expensive operation to run, clearly. Because yeah. when you look at the recent results from those that are still in the business, like uh, Stagecoach halved its dividend at the last set so that the payments now rely on the business X rail. So it's kind of, it's almost suggesting that they don't really expect to win any more contracts. Mm. And yeah, Go ahead, reported a massive fall in profits. Same with first group. It's in the rail division specifically, not necessarily a group level. But yeah, they're just incredibly loss-making franchises to run. And it seems like uh, National Express just had the right idea to get rid of it altogether. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, so it's, a, it's a damaged sector. Um, but it's one that is very topical because, um, particularly after Labour Labour Party conference, renationalising 
some of these essentially kind of the the infrastructure of the country is is very high on the agenda and i think you, you quote some figures in this piece uh that uh suggests that there is a huge appetite amongst the commuting public yes. for for renationalizing of the railways 60% of uh Britons think that the UK rail franchise system should just go completely back to the government. I mean, it does. It does seem like there's a possibility of that happening by default. I mean, if, if I mean, the Labour Party is very in favour of it. Well, indeed, I mean, they might get their way because if, you know, if these private private companies actually say, "Look, I don't, I don't want any part of this. Yeah, it's too hard to make out, money." Then... Somebody else is going to have to step in. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess, I guess that kind of, and it could be the government. It Although, could be the government. why on earth would you, would, you know, if I was the government, which I'm not, uh, why, I wouldn't want to own, own something that was going to cost me an absolute fortune every year to, to run um, with all the problems that come with it. Mm-hmm. And, but- you know, and I mean, you just, I, I just, I just can't, it beggars belief that, that this would be any better, that they would be run any better. I mean, at this point, does it seem like it can really get much worse? But it's, I don't know, central- really? centralizing it all under, oh, I think under the, ra- the government. I think the rail networks were pretty bad uh, in the in the sort of seventies and eighties. Worse then. than they are today, <laughs> believe believe me. Um, so so yeah, there, there is there is this kind of weird dichotomy. You've got a sector that, that private companies increasingly don't want to be part of, mm-hmm. and you've got a government that, that kind of wants to take hold of it, but is going to be a money pit. Um, yeah. You know, not not exa- exactly uh, what what the country needs. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also have foreign operators, and this is this is the other big big um issue in this sector my line is run by a foreign operator and, and they which seem one is that? it's uh it's called greater anglia Abel- abelio greater anglia abelio being the dutch national railway um and they seem to do a re- reasonable job of it and 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 i think it's really quite interesting um in your piece that you suggested actually the the direction in which rail investment is going means that we it's not just what would be nice to have foreign operators involved in our railways um we will need them because yeah. they have the expertise that we don't have in the uk yeah i mean the best example of that is the west coast partnership where part of that is going to be running this hs2 high speed system mm. and from london going up north to birmingham not not many fans of that project incidentally but uh, uh no, well <laughs> it seems like some foreign operators tend to be big fans of that project I because yeah there's just there's no uk rail company that has the actual capacity to run a high-speed rail network. So they've had to um, partner up with different foreign operators to make their bid. It's like a joint venture. Yeah, yeah. Some with some French operators, some with some Italian operators, some from Asia. I mean, it's, it's fascinating that, you know, we, we, you know, there is this desire to renationalise the railways, but to, to keep the railways running and, you know, to the standard that we want them to be run, we, we, we have to invite foreign operators. Yeah, in the case and, of high speed anyway, it's, it's not a choice, it's a necessity. Yeah, so, so you know, the, the future of this sector looks very, very difficult. It's is, quite bleak at the moment. Is there any, I mean, is there any reason to invest in transport businesses that, you know, tra- the transportation of people? Um, I mean, we are... On, on roads rather than in the air. Yeah, I mean, uh, like our only buy tip in specifically the UK transport sector is National Express. And they, at the last set of results, they posted uh, record profits. And they're the ones that got out of the UK rail business. So clearly there's still money to be made elsewhere. So they also tend to have operations in North America as well that are doing quite quite well yeah so, i mean national express obviously most people would know them from the coaches that uh you know, the right. network of coach routes that run around britain what are they doing overseas so uh they have a bus system in the u.s and a bit in canada too i believe okay but, yeah but that's it it's, and uh, kind of the only uh headwind there is that employment in the u.s is becoming so full that they're kind of having to pay their bus drivers a lot more so that they don't go and work elsewhere yeah, yeah, yeah. but apart from that it's all going 
quick plan. But the but the plan, presumably, uh, you know, to grow that business is looking overseas for opportunities to run to run similar networks. Yeah, absolutely. Seems quite, seems quite sensible. Mm-hmm. Okay, there you go. Rail, avoid it. Unfortunately, I can't every day. I have to uh, spend a fortune on the trains and uh, and a lot of time as well. Mm. But my my line, thanks. Maybe don't buy shares in them. No, don't buy shares in them. Um, Tom, let's move to, to the cover feature again. Mm. This, I mean, there is a link here. Uh, the whole yeah. nationalisation thing, uh, renationalisation, is kind of relevant to the debate about uh, the kind of social the role companies have to play in society. One of the uh, sort of groups of companies at the core of that is Walter. And obviously there's been a lot of talk this week about renationalising those guys as well. Yeah, yeah, there has been. It's um, So the Labour Party conference uh, that Labour unveiled its plan for uh, for renationalising the water network. I suppose the most the most pertinent points for, for our readers would be that uh, any existing shareholders would be compensated with bonds. But the the amount the government would pay would be decided by Parliament uh, under the precedent set out. Not by the market, then? No, no. uh, Set out... It's under the precedent set out by um, Northern Rock, which is not really the precedent you want if you're... Which went bust, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So whether Northern Rock is the same as Pennant, I will uh, will leave to individuals to decide for themselves. But it's... uh, Basically, it's not where you want to be. But um, so essentially, yeah, that... The legal precedent established in that case is that uh, Parliament has the final say on on how much it would cost. And uh, it says, I've got the thing in front of me, it says that Parliament may seek to make deductions for compensation on the basis of uh, pension fund deficits, assets stripping since privatisation and state subsidies given to the privatised water companies since Mm. privatisation. Yeah, so so I guess the reason it links up to the feature is because uh, I mean the, the water companies are a soft target for for this kind of political rhetoric, this kind of Absolutely. political um, because of the way that they are perceived to have behaved, mm. uh, i.e., ripping off their customers. Yeah. Now, whether that's true or not, it's certainly something that many investors are now aware of how companies behave. Mm. So, I mean, I mean, let's put water to one side. You yeah, know, this is kind of the, the horse is perhaps bolted here. Tell me about some of the, we call it ESG, environmental, social and governance. Governance, governance is obviously what we're talking about here. Yeah. So I mean, talk us through those three aspects of the, the, the sustainable investment uh, process. Okay, sure. So the sustainable investment essentially breaks down into two main strands and sustainable and ESG and stuff like that. The terms are used interchangeably depending on who you speak to. Yeah. But essentially ESG is focusing on a number of, factors uh, under the under the umbrella of environmental or social or governance that relate to the performance of the company so what are they doing with their waste or what's the employee diversity like what's the management's track record the independence of the board all these various factors that will be more or less material for individual companies but that holistically give you a pretty good idea of how sustainably the company is being run yeah so so these will be screened for mm. in the way that we may screen for financial metrics yeah and what we're looking for here is companies that are behaving in a positive manner so this is what we're calling positive screening uh, kind yeah. of yeah yeah kind of that works um so so i mean explain to us there are two aspects to uh you can either negatively screen companies out of your investment universe yep. or positively screen them in yes uh, so just talk us through those two concepts so the and new- it does that in fact julia been getting rid of half of your companies yeah i cover a lot of the vice <laughs> <laughs> gambling tobacco booze pubs yeah all the fun ones. got it all yeah the uh, so the negative screening is is as you say screening out things that would be deemed to be unethical uh, Ethics, obviously, 
it's a it's a funny one. It has its origins in, say, uh, Islamic finance, where where people won't invest in certain types of companies just on the on the basis of their beliefs. Um, that's more an ethical choice rather than seeking a particular return. Positive screening is where you would look to you have a belief in a long term trend, say the drive towards renewable energy, and you would seek to maximise your exposure to that trend through positively screening for certain companies. I mean, to talk us through, uh, as I said, the, the various aspects, ESG, mm. what, what are we looking for in each of those those areas? So we've got in the feature, we've got a list of some of the common um, things that people look at. They obviously changes from, from company to company. You're going to be less worried about uh, carbon emissions with, say, a marketing company than you would be with a car maker, for example. But uh, under environmental would be stuff like animal testing, their pollution and how they treat their waste, uh, their attitude to their use of resources and the sustainability of that. On social, it would be things like use of uh, child or slave labour, safety of employee conditions. And then under governance, it's, it's a lot more of the kind of the stuff you would expect from just having a, a comprehensive investment process anyway. So it's stuff like executive compensation, uh, companies, the level of tax the company pays and whether it seeks to avoid or evade any of it, uh, any risks of uh, corruption or bribery charges in any of its um, divisions and uh, any anti-competitive practices they might be involved in. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And it, I mean, it does tie into the whole bit, the big political um, agenda that's going on, certainly, mm. certainly on the Labour Party, that, that companies have essentially behaved in such a way that they need greater uh, worker representation on their boards mm. uh, to encourage them to behave in a, uh, a better way. But, but, but arguably, the market is doing a lot of this for them now. This yeah. is, this seems, these approaches seem to be becoming much more commonplace than they were you know, even half, half a decade ago. Yeah, absolutely. If you, if you believe that, say, the water industry is being run irresponsibly, uh, the only answer to that is not to nationalise the whole thing. That uh, Off what, for example, is already increasing the responsibility on water companies to uh, take customers into account, reduce their bills, invest for the long-term quality of the infrastructure, yeah. reduce leakages, stuff like that. And these companies get rewarded for, for those kind of good behaviours. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there do seem to be mechanisms that, that, are, that are being introduced that, that are improving the way that companies behave. And, Absolutely. Uh, and yeah, as I say, you know, the market seems to be, to be doing some of this work already. One of the key questions about ethical investing and perhaps why it's uh, not exactly been the most popular strategy in the past is that there was always a view that you, that you had to sacrifice returns to be an ethical investor um, yes. is that still true no no it isn't um like i say part of it is investing for a theme so if you believe that there is a long-term trend towards renewable energy then it's just as investable as any other theme uh, and then there's also with uh, changes to crowdfunding regulation and stuff like that it's now much more accessible for individual investors to invest in say offshore wind projects and mm. things like that through through platforms such as abundance which are popping up at the moment so the opportunities are proliferating it's just a case of uh, finding the right ones yeah and there's lots of ethical funds out there mm. you know mainstream uh, providers offering these things you know people yeah. like bailey gifford for example legal in general uh, i think it's four uh, ethical funds in our top 100 th yeah. that are specifically ethical funds and i think a number of others uh, within the top 100 use ethical criteria to some extent Absolutely. as well and i think big business i think a lot of companies do a lot of you know non-ethical funds are starting to use these ethical criteria mm. i think one of the uh things that, that you discuss in the feature uh and alex newman discussed in the secondary feature is that that actually you have to understand 
these, the, the kind of environmental impact of these companies, the social impact, because that is a kind of determinant of how viable they are as investments for the long term. And Absolutely. And he's yeah. then, he's in the case, the case of Alex's feature, looking at oil and gas. Yeah. One way to, uh, to get yourself away from those risks is to sell them entirely. Okay, thank you, Tom. Right, you. so uh, plenty more in the, the magazine uh, this week. Lots of results, and I think we're going to start to calm down for a little bit now, which is uh, which is good. The usual tips, uh, lots in the personal finance and fun section, which they will talk about on their podcast uh, tomorrow. All the usual comment, plus uh, quite a bit of other news, actually. Um, yeah, it's been a busy week. Um, thank you, Julia. Thank you, Tom. And uh, thank you, uh, Megan, over in the control room. Clean up how what's good for the planet can be good for your portfolio. Uh, available in all good news agents. And uh, we'll be back on this podcast next week. Thank you very much.